Okay, Second Peter, still in chapter one, and we are we are looking at verses sixteen through eighteen today. Second Peter one, sixteen through eighteen. The title of the message today it's on the back of your well, it's in your bulletin. Notes are on the outline is on the back. A pre a preview of his coming. A preview of his coming. Let's go ahead and look at verses 16 through 18. Peter says this For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just approach your word today, Lord, with humility. Father, knowing that it is it is indeed your word that we're looking at. Father, I just pray, God, that you will help me, Father, to communicate your word to your people. I pray that you will give us ears to hear what you would have what you would have us to hear today, Father. And Lord, we, we just pray, Father, that, that Christ would be glorified and, and magnified today. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So a preview of His coming. I think you guys, I think all of you in here, if not most of you in here, would agree that sound doctrine is a great thing. Right? We emphasize understanding sound doctrine, which just means teaching, that it's very important. That matter of fact, the, the, in the book of Peter, that's one of the themes of the letter. We've, we've been talking about this word knowledge that he keeps bringing up. Because the context of the letter, once again, is he's trying to prepare these, these believers for the reality of false teachers. They're going to come from without and within. And so the only way we can be guarded against false teaching is to know sound doctrine. So that's a great thing. And anyone can learn sound doctrine through study. Anybody can learn sound doctrine, just as far as the the facts and the the truths of Scripture. But being one who can repeat sound doctrine, okay, maybe they can can understand it up here, they can repeat it. Many people can even repeat the Word of God in a very eloquent way, but that is much different than one who has a living faith. A living, vibrant, breathing faith. I would say that there's many who... uh, that use the word, I really get tired of it, to be honest with you. Sometimes I get tired of the word reformed. Although that's how we would identify ourselves. But there's many people who I think, they can um, communicate the, the truths of Scripture who are dead. They're deader than a doorknob. And so, these things are important to know these truths. But it's different than being, than having an experiential faith, is what I'm saying. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, You shall testify of Me because you have been with Me from the beginning. You shall testify about Me because you've been with Me. What is He saying? You will be My witnesses because you have been with Me. You have seen Me. You have walked with Me. A witness. That's what's in our text today, beloved. An eyewitness of these things. What qualifies someone to be a witness of anything? Right? It's somebody who speaks of what he has seen with his own eyes. Or heard with his ears. Or even touched with his hands. The idea of being a witness. Now, if you guys are like me, I've been looking forward to this meal that we're going to have today. Okay? And I can, I, can, um, I can brag about my wife's angel hair pasta that she brought. Sorry, Jamie. I think Jamie likes everything that Trish makes, but today. <laughs> hey, but there are, some, there are some who could look at all the ingredients in the angel hair pasta and they could read it and they could, they could determine whether it's going to be tasteful based on the ingredients that they read. So people who probably would know much more about cooking than I would. 
But you know what my response would be? I've eaten it. And it is very tasty. Okay? That's being a witness. I have, I have experienced this dish for myself. And so it's the whole, whole idea of, 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 of eyewitness. I've seen. I've heard. I've tasted. I've touched. Today, that's what we're going to see in our text. It's, it's, an, it's being an eyewitness. Peter is saying that he and the others, we, the disciples, three of them, were eyewitnesses of something very specific today. Not just eyewitnesses that, that we know Christ personally, but they're going to, he's going to tell these readers that we were eyewitnesses of this event. And so again, the title of the message is a preview of His coming. And we're going to look at three things that are on the back of your outline. This preview was, number one, rooted not in myth, but majesty. But in majesty. It's rooted, this eyewitness account that he has, it's it's not rooted in myth, but in majesty. In verse 16, even the first word is important. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word for, it just links back to verses 12-15 through that we talked about last week. Remember, Peter was wanting to remind these believers of the truth. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. That we need to be reminded because why? We're forgetful. We need to be reminded. We need to remind one another. The Word of God needs to remind us. And we saw many examples of that in Scripture that we need to be reminded of the truth. But, the, but what he's saying here in verse 16, on the heels of what he said last week, he's explaining that they can be confident that what he is writing, that what he wants to remind them of, that what he wants to be, them to be established in is the truth. And they can be confident of the truth because what he's been telling them what he's been writing, they're not made up stories, in other words. This did not come from a fable. We did not make this up. But these truths are verified by, by Peter's, and, and he says we, Peter, James, and John, they're verified by their personal experience that they had with Christ. Okay? And that's, he's saying this about all truth. These truths that we're giving you. But as we'll see, he's even talking specifically about the power of Christ's coming. We didn't make this stuff up. Which again, is very, very common amongst false teachers. Fables, myths, stories. No, he says these are not cleverly devised tales. That word cleverly devised tales, especially the, the word cleverly, it's an intentional deceit behind it. Fables, or myths, stories made up. And again, who, who, who is characteristic of doing these kind of things that we can see in Scripture? And you can see it in, in our day as well. Just, you don't have to turn to any of these guys just real quickly. Paul mentions a few. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths, these made up stories. In 1 Timothy 4.7, he says, have nothing to do with worldly fables. Stories that are made up. Men not standing and preaching what the Word of God says, but making up stories. Maybe it's a vision to heaven that they had. Which, isn't that amazing? All these people have these supposed visions in heaven, and none of them match up with Scripture, and they don't even match up with each other. But these stories, these fables, in that same verse, he says, on the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And as we'll see, false teachers in chapter 2, when we get there, they are not interested in godliness in any way whatsoever. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. The time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So we see this is very, very common, very characteristic of false teachers and it draws big crowds. And it, 
And it uh, provides them lots of money. Titus 1.14 These deceivers. You hear that? That's what, that's what false teachers are. These deceivers. He says, Reprove them not to teach Jewish myths. Uh, yeah, not to teach Jewish myths. They do this. and He says, They do this for the sake of sordid gain. In other words, greed. That's the motive behind these stories and these fables and these ear-satisfying false doctrines, right? These ear-tickling doctrines. There's always a motive behind it. They're not interested in your godliness. They're not interested in godliness in their own life. And they are interested in making a profit. That's characteristic of false teachers. 2 Peter 2.3 Peter even gives us before we move on uh, when he gets to uh, really talking about these false teachers. Again, we don't know who these false teachers are in 2 Peter. What exactly they teach. But in 2 Peter 3 we see this characteristic. Or in 2 Peter 2 verse 3 And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Fables. Stories. Myths. In their greed. Now these could either be, these could either be in this in this text that we're looking at today. Again, we don't know exactly who these false teachers are. The text doesn't tell us, or even what kind of fables these are. They could either be Jewish fables, like like he just mentioned in um, in Titus, which that word just it means traditions. It could be these Jewish traditions that they're that they're sharing, not sound doctrine. But traditions, stories, things they add, things they add to the Scriptures. They could either be some kind of Jewish, or they could be Gentile fables. They could maybe be Epicurean. In other words, just clothed with Greek philosophy. Which would have rejected punishment after death. 2 Timothy 2.18 He talks about those who deny the future resurrection. But there is no future uh, a physical resurrection at the end. These men that are that are interested in sharing these stories, as we'll see in, in Second Peter, these false teachers. One thing we do know of them is they deny the second coming of Christ. They deny the the, the final resurrection. So it could be it could be any of these. You see, that's appealing. That's appealing to the natural man. To, to, to hear somebody with supposed authority from the Bible that teaches, you know, there's really no second resurrection or final resurrection. There's really no second coming of Christ. There's really no punishment after death that you need to be afraid of. You think of the Jehovah's Witnesses of our day. That's very appealing to to men who love their sin. There's no hell. When it gets right down to it, you're not really going to be accountable. Hell is just going to be a lower level of heaven. Hell is going to be kind of like it is on earth. That's what false teachers teach, these type of things. So it could be any of these things that, that he's talking about, these fables. So Peter is very likely, probably, defending himself with these very words and the other apostles, he's defending themselves against false accusations. Because the context, as we'll see, he's dealing with false teachers. So he's saying, we didn't make this stuff up. The things that I'm sharing are not rooted in, in fairy tales, in fables, in myths. And so what does he say here? Still in verse 16. We see that it's not rooted in myth, first of all. We did, not, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. So, so before we get to that majesty part, let's just talk about this coming because this is really the, 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 the center of what he's talking about. This power coming literally means this powerful coming. It could be one word. Powerful coming of our Lord. What, what coming is he, re, is he referring to? Is it His first coming? Well, first of all, was there power in His first coming? Absolutely there was power in His first coming. What are some things where Christ demonstrated His power when He came the first time? 
Well, we know that He had power over sickness, did He not? We see Him healing the sick. We see Him growing limbs on people who didn't have any. It's been said that in that area where He ministered that He eliminated disease during His ministry. So we see that that is great power that He had over the sick and the lame. We see example after example. And of course, John said that it was just a fraction of what happened, what he wrote down. We saw him having power over the weather, did we not? Remember the storm that he calmed, guys, with his disciples? You know, that was like a hurricane-type storm. And to, and to see a, because he was fully man, to see a man say, be still. That's tremendous power. So we do see this, this power that he demonstrated in his first coming. We see him having power over the demonic realm, did we not? Casting out demons. The demons knew who He was. The demons begged Him not to, not to uh, send them to the abyss before their appointed time. So we see Him exhibiting great power even in His first coming. Even power over death. Right? We see Him on multiple occasions causing a dead person to come back to life. Most notably, we remember Lazarus, right? At the sound of his voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he came. And then obviously, through his, his, his death, burial, and his resurrection, we see him demonstrating with power to be the Son of God. Romans 1.4. Right? We see him demonstrating his power over the grave. Not just in raising individuals like Lazarus, but causing dead sinners who hate God to be raised again unto life spiritually. That's the greatest miracle I believe that there is. Regeneration. See, God creates out of nothing, does He not? In the beginning was God. He spoke. And the world came into existence. But with a dead sinner, He takes somebody who is hell-bent on rebelling towards God and He makes them brand new, raises them from the dead. We see His power just in regenerating a dead lost sinner and, and, and setting him free from the, the guilt of sin and the, and, the, and the power of sin. You think about, I remember living as a slave to sin and you think about somebody who is a habitual liar. You know what? You know how much that life wears a person out? That life gets exhausting to have to lie, to cover up this lie, to cover up this lie. And Christ can take a person like that. I'm raising my hand. And He can make you into a new person where you love the truth. That is the power of God, beloved. So we see His power in His first coming. That He is able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for Him. Oh, He did come in power in His first coming. He is mighty to save. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. If there is anybody who thinks that God could not save them because they're too sinful, they don't understand the power of God. The power of the Gospel. God saves sinners. He rescues sinners. And He, and, and he just... He just pleads with us in His Word to come to Him like a little child. You know, I was reminded of that this weekend. We had our grandson. And just how simple. Christ gave these illustrations to come like a child. Unless you turn and become like a little child, you're not going to enter My kingdom. And, and it just reminded me of this, having a, a little two and a half year old and how, how trusting they are of the adult that they're with. They trust. It's a childlike Faith and trust. Simple trust. And that's what God wants from sinners. Lay down your pride. That's what repentance is. And trust Christ. Come to Him like a child. Humble yourself like a little child. That's always the, the plea from Scripture is for us to humble ourselves. So God is mighty to save. We see His power in His first coming. And so I would hate anybody ever to be in this church and not to know that power, that saving power of Christ. He is mighty to save. Amen? Amen? Christ is mighty to save. But this is not what this is talking about. 
This is not what Peter's talking about. He's not, he's not referring to his first coming. He said, For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The powerful coming. No, this word is parousia. And it's always referring to his second visible return to this earth. That's what he's referring to. It's a, it's a powerful coming that he's referring to that, that all, that everybody will witness. And all will be personally and eternally affected by it. Now, now Peter says in verse 16, uh, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. So he's saying we, including himself. He's talking about the second coming. When are some times that, that Peter made known to them? Well, we go back to 1 Peter. It's the same people he's writing to. 1 Peter 1, verse 5, just real quickly. Here's a few reminders. If you remember, I made these points when we were going through 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 5. He says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the, the writers of the New Testament were always anticipating the return of Christ. Always. They anticipated it 2,000 years ago. How much more should we? And then in chapter 4, verse 13, he says this, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And then, and then we see, um, then we see Paul. We can see Paul. Obviously, we could look at many, many references. But just a little taste of what he's saying when he says "we," meaning the apostles, those those who have been commissioned by God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. Here's an example of Paul. He says, To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints and on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. These are just a few examples. He said, when we made known to you the power of His coming, we did not make these things up. Why is... <clears throat> Why is Peter emphasizing the truth of his coming in this verse, beloved? It's real important to remember the context of 2 Peter. Why is he emphasizing right here in this verse the, the truth of his coming? Because we know, one thing we do know about these false teachers, we don't know exactly what they taught, but we do know this in chapter 3, verse 4. These false teachers in their mocking, what did they say? Where is the promise of His coming? And He knows that these false teachers are denying the second coming of Christ. And so that's why He's making this statement here. He's like, these things we've been telling you, all the truth we've been telling you, specifically about His coming, is not based on fables like the false teachers. The things they tell you are based on fables. They don't believe in the second coming of Christ. How convenient is that? Right? They deny the future final resurrection. That's, that's real convenient for a false teacher to deny. Why? Because they're greedy and ungodly. And, and Peter says, we saw in uh, previous verses in verse 11, that it's those who have been transformed by the grace of God, right? Evidence we looked at a couple weeks ago. Evidenced by the, the, the graces in their life. The change in their life through the new birth. In verse 11, it's those who are going to enter into this kingdom. Those who have lived a godly life demonstrated, which demonstrated they were truly born again. Not a perfect life, 
But those who have pursued Christ are those who are going to be welcomed in. So of course these false teachers who are greedy, ungodly, unregenerate, that's a very convenient thing to do to reject the uh, second coming of Christ. And it would attract large crowds. Don't go over there where they teach judgment that you're going to be accountable to God. Come over here. Come over here. Look at all the people we have over here. We'll tickle your ears over here. But beloved, that day's coming. That's what Peter's saying. That day's coming. And you know, there may be people think, well, I'll be dead on that day. So how will it affect me? How will the second coming affect me if it's... If it's not for another 200 years, and yet I, I'm dead way before then. The second coming will only affect those who are here. That's not the case at all. No, this is a powerful coming. And on that day, He will demonstrate His power by raising the dead. All. Listen to what John 5, verse 28-29 says. The second coming of Christ will affect all people. Pharaoh will be there on that day, beloved along with Adam and Eve, along with you and I. Listen to what John 5, 28, 29 says. Jesus says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear My voice. And will what? Come forth. Those who did good deeds, this is, a, this is simply a description of the believers, the unbelievers, the, the sheep and the goats, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Amen? Beloved, those in Christ, we're going to receive a resurrected body. A perfect body. Brother, you hear that, Rocky? We're all going to receive a resurrected body. Because all of our bodies are going to decay. Right? They're like used cars. You've heard me say that. You just get older and they wear out. And eventually we're going to go on the ground. And our bodies will decay. But one day we're going to receive a resurrected body. The same kind of body that Christ had. But it doesn't, it, this verse doesn't stop there. He said those who committed the evil deeds, speaking of the, the goats on His left, to a resurrection of judgment. Those are frightening words for those who die in their sin outside of Christ. What's he saying? On that day, even those who are in torment now, their bodies will be resurrected. It's the final judgment, the sheep and the goats, when God, or when Christ, deals out final judgment to all the nations. This is the power of His coming. He will summon the nations to Himself. Summon. He will summon the nations. All individuals will appear before the judge. This is the powerful coming that Peter is referring to. And then he will deal out judgment. The Bible says the Father has given all judgment to the Son. He will deal out judgment to every person with righteous judgment. That means he's perfect in his knowledge. No two people will be judged like because God is perfect and he's righteous and everything he does is perfect. That day is what this, that's what he's referring to. This is that powerful coming that, that Peter's referring to in verse 16. And, and so it's not by myth. This powerful coming that we have made known to you is not by myth. We didn't make this up, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that's the second thing we see under point one. We're eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw with their own eyes. Very simple, right? You know, when I was 16 years old, and really one of my first times to bow hunt with my dad down in southeast Oklahoma, I saw a mountain lion. And I've heard people say before then, there's no mountain lions in Oklahoma. But guess what? I saw one. His tail was that long with a black tip on the end of it. So I saw a mountain lion. I was eyewitness. It doesn't matter what the experts say. I saw a mountain lion with my own eyes. The courage, beloved, think about this. And this is any area of life. The courage and boldness that a person has when whatever it is they are proclaiming, when they know it's true because they've seen it. You understand the, the confidence that gives a person? They've seen it with their own eyes. The apostles were preachers of what they had seen. 
I mean, when, you, when you've seen things with your own eyes, when you've experienced it, it doesn't matter what the experts say. Remember the blind man that Jesus healed? They, and the, the, the Jewish leaders kept asking Him and asking Him these different questions. He said, all I know is I was blind and now I see. That's all He knew. He encountered Christ. He was an eyewitness. And so what was it they had witnessed? It says, we are an eyewitness of His majesty. That means, and it's speaking of Christ. We were an eyewitness of, of Christ's majesty, the majestic glory. If you guys were paying attention when we read Psalm 96, this majestic glory is always reserved for God alone. And they saw Christ in His majestic glory. Beloved, this was not even something earthly that they saw. This was Christ in His glory. The glory that He's going to return with. You see, they had already seen all of His miracles at this time before the transfiguration. They had been with Him. They had heard His teaching. But this was different. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This would stick with these apostles for the rest of their lives. And so it wasn't, it wasn't by fable. It wasn't by myth. It wasn't these cleverly devised tales. But we saw Him in His glory. Secondly, it was revealed by the Father in verse 17. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It says that, that He received, Christ received honor and glory from the Father. The, the honor was just simply the, the words that the Father spoke. That the Father in His majestic glory, the majestic glory of verse 17 is speaking about the Father. What did He say? This is My Son. He received honor from the Father by that, by that statement and that, that emphatic statement. This is My Son. This is the One in His majesty that you have been waiting on. This is the One. This is the Messiah. This is the One promised by the Law and the Prophets. All the way back to Genesis. This is the majestic, my majestic Son. And obviously, I think you guys know that. We read it even in our Scripture reading. What event is Peter referring to? He's referring to his transfiguration. Let's look at Matthew's account real quickly. Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, the last verse in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 28. Matthew 16, 28 down through verse 9 in, in, verse, in chapter 17. Matthew 16, 28. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I've heard people try to decipher what He's talking about. I think it's very clear. <laughs> the very next verse, six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as the light. The glory that he's referring to is just that, that phrase right there. His garments became as white as light, and the cloud overshadowed him. That's the glory. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. In other words, it's just this bright cloud we can see. It's always symbolizing the glory and presence of Yahweh. You can see that in the Old Testament. So it's the presence of God. And it says, Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And obviously when He's writing Second Peter... He had already risen from the dead. So he's telling these believers about it. So this event, obviously, is this transfiguration, what Peter's referring to here in, 
Second Peter. Matthew, in Matthew 16.28, we just read, they, meaning Peter, James, and John, says, will not taste death until they see, until they witness the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, now His first coming, beloved, He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? He said the kingdom is at hand in His first coming. But it's an already not yet. It's an already not yet. Yes, His kingdom did come. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it won't be fully consummated. It won't be brought in completion until His return. There are many people say His kingdom's come in full now. Physically. No, it has not. It will come fully at His return. Consummated. Brought in completion at His return. So what is all this saying, guys? The title of the message is a preview of His coming. This transfiguration that Peter is explaining to these believers prefigures His coming. It's like a, it's like a preview of it. It's a preview. When you think about, you think about when you go to the movie theater, you're, you're fixing to watch a movie and they have all these previews. Even long before you see them on TV. It's not the actual movie, but it's a preview of that movie that's coming, right? People could say, ah, oh, that movie's not coming out. No, I saw the preview. It's coming. It's coming out. And that's what this is. It's an anticipation of Christ coming in His majestic glory. They got a glimpse of it. They got a glimpse of it. They saw Christ in His glory. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty on the mountain. So we write these things to you because we saw Him in His glory. We're not making these things up. And then what was their immediate response, guys? When we read it in, in Matthew. Matthew 17, verse 6, it says, They fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And these were the three inner, intimate disciples. And they fell on their face in fear. This was Christ in His glory, in His majesty. What does the text say in Revelation? When He comes, when Christ comes back, in, the, in His powerful second coming, it says, men will beg the mountains to fall on them rather than to face the wrath of the Lamb of God. That's when he, He's coming in His power. And so, beloved, this event, again, it is etched in their memory. They'll never forget about this. He's saying these things that we preach and teach are based on what we have seen. And, and specifically the second coming of Christ. Who these liars and deceivers are the event that they're going to deny. That they are denying. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Beloved, did you know that God says the same thing about you and I if we are in Christ. Did you know that He is pleased with us because of our identification with Christ? The only reason that He'll be able to say that He is pleased with us, that, that well done, good and faithful servant, is because you're in Jesus Christ. Because apart from Christ, guys, even our best deeds are like filthy rags. But because those who are in Christ, He is pleased with you as well. Those who are covered, those who are covered in robes of the righteousness of Christ, those who have had his perfect righteousness imputed to their account, he's pleased with you as well. It's all because of Christ. Outside of Christ, we can't do anything to please God. Being in Christ, God loves you with the same love that he loves his son. And so it was received by the Father. It was revealed. It was revealed by the Father. So these things that Peter's telling these these believers, they're not lies. They're not myths. They're not stories. But they're rooted in the majesty of Christ that they saw, and it was the Father who revealed this on the on that mountain, on that holy mountain. What makes the mountain holy? God's presence. Okay, God's presence. Nobody knows for sure what mountain it was. It's irrelevant. It was holy because of God's presence. Many commentators think it's a uh, 
A fulfillment of Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read that real quickly. That, that the transfiguration was the fulfillment of this. Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Whether that's exactly what Psalm 2 is referring to right there, but we know this, that Christ is reigning in His exalted status right now. That because of His obedience to God, we read in Philippians 2, His obedience even unto death, death on a cross, God has highly exalted Him. And they got a glimpse of that, is what this text is saying. They got a glimpse of Christ in His exalted glory. In His transfiguration. They got a glimpse of it. In verse 18, our third and last point, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So they they not only saw with their eyes, but they heard with their ears. And remember what the Father said? Listen to Him. Peter didn't share that phrase here in 2 Peter. But when we read it in the uh, Gospel accounts, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Christ. Christ has all authority. We need to listen to what He says. Amen? He is the Word. He is the Word made flesh. And the Father saying, listen to Him. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ, right? He's saying, listen to Him. For example, Jesus says in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who has My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We tell people, listen to Christ. Listen to the simplicity of the Gospel. God sent His Son. If you will trust in His Son, you can escape death. You can pass from death to life. But Peter's saying, we saw. We saw the majestic glory. We heard the voice. The majestic voice of the Father. And we testify that Jesus Christ is coming back. That's Peter's argument here. And you had better be ready. Be ready. Be ready. So take heart, Christian. Right? Take heart, Christian. Always the majority of the people that are writing to are Christians. The majority of the people that I'm going to be talking to are Christians. The warning is for the unbelievers, right? Repent and believe in the Gospel while God has given you time. But as a Christian, take heart. These aren't fables. These aren't fables that the apostles have passed down. You can trust. You can trust what we have told you. You can trust that He is coming back. Why? Because we were eyewitnesses of these things. Okay? Not just of His earthly ministry, but of His glory on that mountain. The same glory that He's going to come back with. What does the Apostle say in Acts 4.20, guys, as we're, as we're approaching the end here? Do you remember what the, the, the Apostle said in Acts chapter 4? It was Peter, I believe John, uh, when they were preaching the Gospel... And they were, uh, you know, getting in trouble with the authorities. And you remember what what their response was? In in Acts 4.20, they said, We cannot stop speaking about what? What we have seen and heard. When you're a true eyewitness of something, you can't stop speaking about it. Beloved, we are witnesses to what we have seen and heard. If you are born again, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ, the transformation of the new birth, the Holy Spirit that He gives you, then you're a witness for Christ of what you have seen and heard. You're like the blind man. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. All I know is this book used to be dead to me, but now it's alive. All I know is I used to love my sin, I used to treasure my sin, and now I detest it. That's all I know. And I'm learning other things. 
But it's because of Christ. It's because of that power, that saving power. What could cause so many people, beloved, beginning beginning with the disciples that we read about, or even if you go into the Old Testament, but specifically talking about the New Testament church, what could cause so many of these individuals to boldly obey and preach Christ even to the point of death? What could cause that? It's the fact that they had seen and heard. Tied up by the authorities in the stadium in uh, middle of the second century to be burned at the stake for refusing to call Caesar Lord Polycarp. He told the proconsul, the authorities, as he was tied to the stake, he said, you threaten me with fire which burned for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly you are ignorant of. But why do you, he says, why do you delay? Do whatever you please. Beloved, how could a man say something like that? Because of what he had seen and heard. He knew the risen Christ. Polycarp knew Christ. What about you? What about you today, sitting here today? Have you witnessed these things? Now, not, not, not to, the, to the point where Peter's talking about seeing Christ in His majestic glory, but the Acts 4. No, we've seen and heard Christ. We have, seen, we have experienced His saving grace. And that's why we can't stop talking about it. Because we know this One who has set us free from sin. Who has given us a purpose for living. Who has set His love up in our hearts to where we even now can love our enemies. We have this love. Have you witnessed these things? Have you personally experienced the power of His resurrection, beloved? Where He sets sinners, Romans 6, free from the power of sin. Have you experienced the new birth? The presence of the, of the third person of the triune God indwelling you, bearing witness with your spirit that you are indeed a child of God? Do you have a desire to now follow Him? Is your greatest desire, although we do it, we do it pitifully sometimes, but the desire of our heart is to follow after Him? To put this world behind us and to follow after Jesus Christ. Like John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Has that transformation, is it a reality in your life? You now now love Christ. And again, it's a weak love sometimes. It's a weak faith, but it's alive. And like he said last week, it's, it's growing. It's growing. It's increasing. Do you have a, a desire to take up your cross, to die to yourself, follow Him daily? As His disciple? And do you eagerly, beloved, do you eagerly anticipate His coming? Remember what we said several weeks ago when we had a message on the second coming? It purifies us. We think about His coming, it purifies us. There's there's teachings out there that tell you don't think about His coming because it's not going to be for another thousands of years at least. So there's no reason to even think about it. No, the Bible says we're to anticipate it and it will purify us. Do you anticipate that day, beloved? And lastly, have you personally tasted, just like I was telling you about my wife's food, but spiritually speaking, have you personally tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Amen. I see heads nodding. Praise God. God is good and God saves sinners. And He is merciful. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You, Lord, for coming the first time, sending Your Son the first time. We thank You for His first coming when it says that He came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And Father, we thank You, Lord, as Your people that You are coming back again. Lord, to make all things right. All that's wrong in this world, all of the the injustice, Lord, all of the, the sin, all of the darkness, all of the deceit, Lord, all of the mockery of You. Father, all, all of the evil that we see in our land, Lord, one day when You come back, You're going to make things right, Father. That's why You said, vengeance is Yours, leave it to You. Father, may we love our enemies with the truth. May we be kind to those who persecute us. May we pray for our enemies, Father, so that they can experience Your powerful coming with a resurrection unto life. Father, I pray that that would be the desire of our hearts, Lord. Our weapons are not carnal. Father, but they're, they're spiritual and they're mighty for the bringing down of strongholds, Father. Our, our weapons are Your Word and prayer and a holy life. So Father, I just pray, God, that You would just continue to draw us closer to You. Father, may we know You more. May we increase in our knowledge as Peter is instructing these hearers, Lord. May we increase in our knowledge. May we, may we be able to stand firm against the heresies and the, and the false teachers of our day, Lord. May we be able to stand firm. May we be not tossed to and fro, God, but may we be rooted in Your truth. And Father, may we love one another. May we walk with one another. Be there for one another. Encourage one another as we see the day approaching, Father. Lord, we thank You for Your inerrant, inspired, infallible Word that we, that we looked at today, God. And we look forward to, to um, Lord, just the, the future of what You have for us as a church and as individuals. Lord, um, You've prepared good works before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them, God, after saving us by Your grace through faith. We love You. And we praise You in Christ's name. Amen.